It's just after five o'clock and you are tuned in to KZMU Moab Community Radio. It's This Week in Moab and I'm your host Molly Marcello and we're here with a very special guest um, in the studio who will be filling us in on an exciting event kicking off this week at the Moab Museum. It's an upcoming temporary exhibition called A Moab Prison Camp, Japanese American Incarceration in Grand County. The official public opening is Saturday, February 17th. That's this Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And there's some information already on the Moab Museum's website. And they say that it's introducing the local and national story of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. And they tell us that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, President Roosevelt signed an executive order authorizing the wartime incarceration of over 120,000 Japanese Americans, the majority of them U.S. citizens. And these citizens were placed in detention facilities across the country, and Moab played a brief but significant role in this history. So that's a long preamble to let you all know who's joining me today. <laughs> but we have the one, the only, Mary Langworthy, the public programs manager at the Moab Museum. Welcome, Mary. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. Glad to be here. I want to get into what this exhibit is um, because you won't just have, you know, the physical exhibit at the museum, but there are also events and community gatherings um, surrounding it. But before we do that, um, do you mind getting into the history um, a little bit? Tell us about Dalton Wells and about this time in the early 1940s. Absolutely. Uh, So just setting the national stage a little bit first, um, the outset of World War II is the time frame we're talking about. And um, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entering really global warfare, uh, President uh, FDR signs Executive Order 9066, which authorizes the creation of a new agency called the War Relocation Authority, which was tasked with basically rounding up all people of Japanese ancestry living along this area of the West Coast that they had established and called the Exclusion Zone. And people, again, these are mostly U.S. citizens, like two-thirds of them are U.S. citizens, Others would have been eligible for naturalization had they not been from Japan, uh, but had been here for a while. Um, Anyway, people of Japanese descent are ordered to report to these assembly centers and then sent to a series, this network of internment facilities, um, as they were called, Mm -hmm. um, mostly around the West. Um, So kind of conditions at these are really crowded and really sort of like makeshift rough places. Um, So the big ones like Manzanar in California Mm -hmm. and Minidoka in Idaho Mm -hmm. and Heart Mountain in Wyoming, there's like 10 really big Mm -hmm. ones where Japanese Americans end up living for like the duration of the war. Um, So for years um, and have had to leave their communities behind and are dealing with, um, yeah, just like total uprooting and um, living in these 
really challenging circumstances being monitored and kept under armed guard. Mm -hmm. This is a huge number of Americans. This is like 120,000 people. Yeah. And this lasted the duration of the war. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, So there's really like a network of sites and names that you're talking about when you're talking about this history because several states, mostly in the West, there were a couple in Arkansas as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just like remote, desolate, isolated places. Mm -hmm. And then Moab's role is um, the Moab Isolation Center up at Dalton Wells, where the new Utah Raptor State Park will be um, soon was sort of like a temporary extrajudicial prison Mm -hmm. um, for alleged, quote, troublemakers from Mm -hmm. those larger camps. So there were comparatively like a very small number of people in Moab um, and for a much shorter duration of time. Mm -hmm. But it is like really a unique part of this big larger system and this big larger national story unfolding. So this this isolation center that was close to Moab near Dalton at Dalton Wells, um, this was even like a prison on top of a prison. Yeah, and kind of a common refrain from people who were being imprisoned there was, what charges am I being held here on? Mm-hmm. Like, why have I been separated from my family? What's right. what's going on? Um, this feels unconstitutional um, is something that a lot of the folks there were saying. Right. And how long was the was the isolation center in Moab open or just, used, I should say? Yeah. Yeah. Just 106 days. Um, wow. So just a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, and they arrived like really early in the year and then um, were transferred like mid spring to a, quote, permanent um, detention facility mm-hmm. in Loop, Arizona, um, on the Navajo Nation, um, where they stayed for much longer after. So it was a a very temporary situation. And you may have mentioned this already, so forgive me, Mary, if you did already. But um, there were 55 men who were imprisoned here in 1943. So um, do we know anything about them? What do we know about them? We do. Um, And also a nod here to Utah State Parks, who's been working really hard to curate stories Mm -hmm. about folks incarcerated there in collaboration with their descendants. So, um, for example, um, one man who is incarcerated there, Joseph Kirihara, is remembered today as one of the prominent voices in the struggle for like freedoms at this time. Um, And he was born in the U.S. He served in World War One, was a veteran, um, was, you know, living life, had a couple different business and school um, things happening. And then World War Two comes around and um, he was forced into one of these incarceration camps and said, hey, this feels really unjust. I've defended this country. I'm a U.S. citizen. I've never been to Japan. Um, I think he also didn't even speak Japanese. He was just like, what? You think I'm disloyal? Um, So he was a vocal opponent um, to what was happening. And there's a biography written about him. Um, And after the war, he ended up renouncing his U.S. citizenship and moving to Japan, where he had never been before. 
didn't speak Japanese and was just like, I'm done with America. I mm, don't wow. like how you just wow. treated my people during the war. And this was a story that was able to be found from Utah State Parks? So, yeah, this story um, is one of several um, right. that mm -hmm. they've been working on. Wow. Um, I just finished his uh, rereading this biography mm -hmm. of him. Um, so it's top of mind. But another one, um, Harry Bueno, is profiled in our exhibit. Um, mm. And Utah State Parks has worked with family members of his. Um, there's also oral histories that he did that are available online and just a lot of information about him. Um, he was involved in the revolts at the Manzanar camp. Um, mm. yeah. He had been involved as like a mess hall union leader, wow. um, kind of community organizer. And there was this big conflict that I won't go into the nitty gritties of, okay. but um, he ends up in Moab. And yeah, just a lot of these folks are remembered today as kind of the most prominent voices of resistance. Right. You know, I'm so glad that you use that word resistance because some some of the literature that's already out there ahead of the exhibit that's online on your website, moabmuseum.org, you kind of pull out a few terms. Um, one is troublemakers, you know, as you explained, this um, building was transformed into a prison for so-called troublemakers from other camps. But the exhibit is going to unpack some nuanced terminology. So Tell us about transforming, you know, the choice to transform the term troublemaking to resistance. Yeah. Um, I mean, the language, there's so many words in this history that people have heard or they hear being used and are like, what? What's that? Right. What does that mean? <laughs> um, talking about like internment even too. like a lot of us when we learned about this in the first place in high school, maybe. Um, heard like internment camp as um, the term right and like if you look at what that legally means in mm -hmm. other places it doesn't really quite line up what with what was happening mm. um, similarly the war relocation authority mm -hmm. um, like if you think of someone being relocated mm -hmm. that doesn't like necessarily sound yeah. I don't know. It's just like you're being relocated because there yeah. is a terrible flood or like right. l just the connotations of mm -hmm. those words mattered a lot. And like mm -hmm. in internal memos at the time, President mm -hmm. FDR was calling them concentration camps. Right. So you kind of look at those like, OK, hmm. relocation center mm -hmm. quote versus concentration camp. Like, mm -hmm. let's look at those definitions and look what what was happening and kind of get straight with that because the words we use really influence our understanding of right. something. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, this ca calling, you know, folks who were resisting um, this type of treatment troublemakers is a huge shift. Um, calling, you know, people who are incarcerated just being relocated is a huge shift. It takes out so much context from what was actually happening. So um, that's a fascinating discussion. And I'm really excited that the exhibit is exploring yeah. that. Yeah, we've got a, um, and this is something that um, is really informed by what other organizations yeah. are doing. Um, there's this 
uh, online resource Densho is um, an organization dedicated to preserving and sharing this history. So they have like mm. a ton of online oral histories Amazing. and incredible online resources, um, including a glossary that's really prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of our research to make this whole exhibit, we traveled to other sites and talked with um, other Japanese American descendants and survivors wow. and museums that talk about this history full time. Mm-hmm. And they said it, it was like a frequent suggestion of like define all the terms and make people think about them at mm, the front. So yeah. we'll be doing that, too. That's amazing. OK, speaking of, <laughs> you know, what was the thought process and the actual process like for the MOA Museum in deciding to curate an exhibit mm-hmm. on this history of uh, Japanese-American incarceration near Dalton Walls. It's really in response to the community mm-hmm. and questions and inquiries that yeah. we've been getting. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been developing like exhibit and program outlines um, at the suggestion and sort of informed by um, what folks in the community are really curious about and mm-hmm. a lot of people over years mm-hmm. and years and years have been curious about this yeah. and a former museum curator back in the 70s was just sending information <laughs> and doing research about this and saying I wow. hope we have an exhibit on this someday <laughs> wow um, so yeah shout out to Lloyd Pearson <laughs> Um, just going through the old institutional records. Mm -hmm. Wheels have been turning for a while. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just within the past few years, we've been really eager to help share this story more, especially as it gets more attention with Utah Raptor State Park opening at that site soon. Right. Um, And that strikes me, you know, having this conversation or at least, you know, former staff at the museum, you know, bringing this up as, you know, early as the 1970s. It's now happening in 2024. Mm -hmm. You know, how much research has the museum had to do on its own, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to piece together these stories and this information? Yeah, it's been a big collaborative. Right long-running effort right um (laughs) yeah lots of lots of reading lots of conversations with other people um Mm -hmm. to make sure that what we're sharing is the product of a lot of perspectives yeah so the public opening of this exhibit is this saturday there's also a story sharing component to the public opening is that correct so tell, tell me about that Yeah, so um, it'll be free admission to get into the museum all day from 9 to 5, but from 10 to 2 specifically, we'll be hosting a scan and share event with the Utah Historical Society. Um, And basically what that means is if you've got stuff, two-dimensional stuff, photos, documents, things of that sort, particularly that are related in some way to Dalton Wells um, during its time as a CCC camp or Japanese American incarceration site or before or after. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that the state's really interested in having be a part of their archives. Um, So you can bring in your thing, they'll scan it, ask you questions about it, and then you take it home. Um, So a nice way to, if you've got a piece of history or a photo of that area, um, 
to be able to share that and still keep it. That's amazing. Also, you know, have you, has the museum like heard from folks who either had family here at that time or remember anything from that time? So we have several items in the collection and stories and oral histories and photos um, of its time as a CCC camp. Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's when the majority of the photos were right. taken, mm-hmm. um, cause it was a longer period of time and circumstances are so different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where most of our like physical artifacts that are relevant right. are from. And okay. we've heard from a number of folks kind of weighing in about that piece of its history too okay all right so this scan and share is happening saturday along with the public opening which is free to the public um and there's more to the community engagement aspect as well um i know the museum is encouraging folks to learn more about japanese american incarceration history and in particular sort of answer this question which is why does this history matter to moabites americans and the world today. So can you tell us a little bit about this, the book club, the reflections you're asking for, notes, voice memos, that sort of thing? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, So the museum's sharing this story, and I think as community members, how we contextualize it is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book club is kind of a chance to do that together. Um, So the gist is we have a list of recommended books and films. Um, A a lot of them are available at the library, and those that aren't can be ordered through Back of Beyond. Um, This list is developed by Japanese-American descendants and survivors and curators and a whole bunch of people, um, kind of for all sorts of readers. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you just pick something from the list that strikes your fancy, um, there's novels, there's graphic novels, kids' books, biographies, um, whatever's your cup of tea, um, give it a read, respond to that question on our website, and your answer can become part of the exhibit during the tail end of its run. Because I think sharing our reflections of why history matters and what we do with it um, makes history so much more powerful. That's amazing. So that those responses will be in the last few weeks of the exhibit, the community responses. So that's yeah. that's a huge piece yeah. of this as well. Absolutely. All right. How long will this exhibit be running? Uh, this exhibit will be running through June. Um, there's also going to be a ton of programs related to the local and national story okay. too. So over the next few months, we'll be hosting a bunch of guests who will be bringing expertise about different parts of Japanese American incarceration history um, to life in programs in the gallery. So presentations and lectures, that sort of thing? Yeah, Yeah. we'll be having um, a couple of film screenings. Um, A volunteer from Manzanar National Park will be coming to, or National Historic Site, to Mm -hmm. talk about um, the connection between that site and Moab, um, mm-hmm. since several people were transferred, mm-hmm. um, will be hosting Kimmy Hill, who's a granddaughter and family historian um, of Chira Obata, her grandfather, who's um, the founder of an art school at the Topaz incarceration oh. camp in Western Utah. So just a wild story of resilience and perseverance and creating beauty 
amidst really challenging conditions. Mm -hmm. um, so she'll be presenting um, Dr. Um, Koji Lao Ozawa, a descendant of people incarcerated at Gila River, will be talking about the massive archaeology work he's undertaken there, um, which is super fascinating wow. story. Um, and then Sam Mihara, a survivor of the Heart Mountain incarceration camp, um, who's in his 90s and a force of nature and a wonderful human, will be joining us at Star Hall uh, May 21st to wrap up the programming series. This, oh my gosh, you know, I admire the museum so much for, you know, you all do such a great job. I mean, it's your job, but <laughs> it, you all do such an excellent job of, you know, capturing like what's going on in a national context to like, how does that relate to our region? How does that relate to our local experience? And here are some personal stories. And you're literally bringing in all of these experts. It's just amazing. We have such an amazing resource and you do so, Thanks, so Molly. much. You do so much. <laughs> it's a important story and it's yeah. hard history yeah. to learn about. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. definitely like a different mm -hmm. feeling yeah. um, mm -hmm. experience, but right. glad to be sharing it and providing a space for Moab to learn more. And how can folks stay updated on all of the associated events coming up with this exhibit? Our website, social media, and swing by anytime and grab a newsletter as well. Yeah, the social media aspect of the Moab Museum, I've been noticing, you know, you've been doing a lot there. And, you know, one of the posts that I was really affected by was the whoever did this, kudos, they mm -hmm. had a scrolling list of the 55 men that were imprisoned at Dalton mm. Wells. And that's just so affecting. So I, yeah, some really, really informative information there too. Thanks. The exhibit is a Moab prison camp, Japanese American incarceration in Grand County. The public opening is on Saturday. It's going through June and we've been talking with Mary Langworthy from the Moab Museum. Mary, is there anything else to be said at this moment about this exhibit or what you're hoping for, maybe? Hoping to see many community members join us on Saturday and over the coming months. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, check that website, moabmuseum.org. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. So, you know, I, as I was preparing for speaking with Mary, I remembered that in 2021, um, I spoke with George Takei, and he's an actor and activist and was in Moab for the Moab Music Festival at that time. He performed a piece that was titled Lost Freedom, a Memory, based on his personal writings about his own forced confinement during World War II. Um, and we spoke together about his personal experience, as I said, but also his life's work in the importance of participating in our democracy to combat racism. And we're going to play that interview now. We're going to revisit visit this interview from 2021. Listeners should know that I was first asking him about his collaboration with composer Kenji Bunch, who he worked with on the Lost Freedom piece. Um, so again, this is my 2021 interview with George Takei um, to round out This Week in Moab. I would love to talk to you um, specifically about storytelling and narrative. Um, you know, I know you've spoken widely about your experiences um, during World War II and confinement. Um, you've done a musical 
you've done a graphic novel, um, and now you've done this collaboration. What was the creative process like between you and Mr. Bunch? And also, you know, what experiences did you feel like you wanted to emphasize for this unique piece? Well, we shouldn't talk in the past tense because uh, I met uh, Kenji Bunch uh, in person for the first time this morning. Uh, we've been communicating via Zoom, uh, purely by technology, and uh, we've been wearing masks. So for the first time, I saw his face naked this morning. <laughs> I met the musicians for the first time today, and it turns out they're all from New York, except one from Berkeley, California, uh, where I went to school. Uh, UC Berkeley. And so uh, we're all non-Newtons. Is that the word you use? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for your narrative, you know, how did you come to write the narrative? You know, what what um, stories did you feel like drawing on? Well, I've been speaking uh, about our the incarceration of uh, Japanese Americans uh, since uh, my early 20s. It's been my mission in life. And so I've written about it. I've uh, spoken about it all, literally all over the world. Uh, I've spoken at Oxford and Cambridge in England. It seems the Brits get a kick out of the Achilles heel <laughs> of Americans. I've spoken in Japan, and at both places, they never knew such a thing happened in the United States to American citizens of Japanese ancestry. Innocent. We had nothing to do with it, and yet... The country was swept up by war hysteria simply because of the way we look. We look exactly like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And the masses were swept up in war hysteria. And we were subjected to the same kind of uh, attitude toward Asian Americans that we are going through now with the pandemic. We were spat on and assaulted. Uh, our homes, businesses, cars were graffitied. Uh, the government came down with a curfew. We were uh, imprisoned in our homes from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. And they froze our bank accounts. Our life savings were taken from us. And with the attorney general making the statement, we have no reports of spying or sabotage or fifth column activities. And that is ominous because... The Japanese are inscrutable, that racist stereotype. And because we can't tell what they're thinking, as a preventative, it would be prudent to lock them up before they do anything. The top attorney in the state of California was making a statement like that. The absence of evidence was the evidence. And that got all the way up to the President of the United States, Franklin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, signed Executive Order 9066, which ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast, approximately 120,000 of us, to be summarily rounded up with no charge, no trial, due process, the central pillar of our justice system, simply disappeared. I was five years old at the time. I was categorized as enemy alien, as was my four-year-old brother, as was my infant baby sister. She wasn't even a year old. 
and she was already an enemy alien. That's how irrational, how crazy, how totally outlandish uh, the internment was. You mentioned um, current sentiment in our world today. You know, hysteria and racism contributed to the situation directly of the internment of Japanese Americans. When you hear about current racism and hysteria and anti-Asian violence and harassment, you know, what are some tools that you think could help turn that tide? Learn the lessons of history. When uh, Donald Trump signed his first executive order, and again, in that, it's that same kind of idiocy by the top leader of our country, he signed an executive order called the Muslim Travel Ban. His rationale was all Muslims are potential terrorists, and so we need to ban them. But some people had learned the lessons from the 1940s. Sally Yates, the Deputy Attorney General, said, I will not defend this executive order. And thousands of young Americans who had learned the history rushed to their airports throughout America, many of them lawyers. They rushed to the airports to welcome Muslim people coming into this country and to welcome them and to defend them and provide them with the guidance on how to uh, navigate the uh, legalities of their coming into this country. So we're learning in slow and very small steps. But again, at the su southern border, we have people fleeing for their lives, literally, from the violence and the outrage. Some women have seen their husbands murdered right in front of them, and they just grab their children, fleeing and seeking asylum, coming to the southern border. And that same has-been president mm -hmm. made a sweeping statement. They're all drug dealers, rapists, and murderers. And they were stopped there. And the children torn away from them. At least in our case, we children were together with our families. But the cruelty of tearing young children away from their mothers and incarcerating them in not barbed wire uh, imprisonment, but uh, a, a chain link uh, confinement. So we never learned that lesson. And we still insist on having presidents uh, that are swept away like that. I wanted to talk to you, too, about, um, you know, marginalization. Often, shame is kind of used as a weapon. Um, what is? Shame. Um, you know, the shame of the other, right? You have the wrong race, the wrong sexuality, the wrong gender. You know, something about you is wrong as a way to control power. Um, you know, can you talk about um, tools that you've used to move beyond the shame of, I know you've talked about your experience um, coming back to Los Angeles after confinement and how difficult it was for you and your family. Um, can you talk about the tools to combat that shame of the other? My parents, and especially my father, never lost their moral compass. They continued to raise us. My father had many, many after-dinner conversations with me, and he emphasized that our democracy is a people's democracy, and people are fallible. 
We have our Achilles heels. Even great men have their Achilles heels. He, he was an admirer of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said during the Depression, he went through the Depression too, he said it was not just an economic depression. The people were spiritually depressed because of the loss of their jobs, their homes. They were living in tent cities and lining up for bowls of soup. He had to raise and galvanize these people in order to bring the economy up. And he said to them, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And he did. He got them to go. But then after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he was terrorized. That was a surprise attack. We weren't prepared. And we had a whole West Coast that was open and vulnerable to that kind of attack. And so he acted irrationally. And my father explained all this to me. He admired Franklin Delano Roosevelt, although he never wanted to uh, even meet uh, and shake hands with Mrs. Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. We had the uh, opportunity to meet with her because we were volunteers in the Adlai Stevenson campaign headquarters. He always taught us, his children, to be actively in in involved in a, a political campaign. We were standing by, not participants in a participatory democracy. And so he's uh, brought me up and I was active in student government. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was elected student body president in junior high, uh, senior board president in high school. And as I said, we were uh, volunteers in uh, many, many mm -hmm. uh, political campaigns. I think that's what it takes. The Japanese American community prior to the war there are exceptions to all uh, generalization, but we were not participants in American society and certainly not the political arena. And that's why my father emphasized to his children to be participants in a participatory democracy. He believed that the ideals of American democracy were noble ideals, but it's dependent on people to make them real. Mm -hmm. And the people are fallible people. Even president is a human being with human fallibilities. And so he, he, he said, we, the diversity of America, have to be participants and guide people to the shining ideals, the noble ideals of our democracy. And uh, so I've been active not only uh, in uh, electoral politics, but also speaking out on our chapter of American history. And uh, I've spoken in schools, chambers of commerce, corporate uh, conferences, and uh, even uh, abroad, I've spoken on uh, this chapter of American history. And so I think we need to at least know that history so that those who are capable of understanding and learning the lessons of history we are better armed to deal with the kind of uh, mindless, ignorant, illiterate uh, hysteria that uh, our democracy is subject to. And just in recent times, we saw the disaster that has been, uh, President has been. And still, his acolytes are behaving in the most irrational form. I mean, they're fighting vaccination 
life or death, and they're choosing death. This is the kind of madness we have to fear in a democracy, a people's democracy, irrational, easily riled up, made hysterical human beings. One last thing that I did want to ask you is about kind of, it's related to the Dalton Wells Isolation Center that was here in Moab. And it's my understanding that about 50 men were held there um, over the period of January to April 1943. And when you read the historical documents, um, these men are described as so-called troublemakers because they dared to question what their government was doing. And, you know, they refused to sign that confusing document that swore their allegiance to the army and to fight for the army. And I am searching for a different word <laughs> to describe these these men and a different way to describe them. The World, World War II years was filled with madness on the part of the United States government and the relentless assault on our dignity. We were forced to sleep in horse stalls right after the signing of the executive order. And this constant uh, assault on our individuality and our manhood, mm -hmm. and many of them turned radicalized at the Tule Lake camp. Uh, and my parents answered the loyalty questionnaire truthfully. It was so uh, put together with such sloppiness, such crudeness. Uh, for example, let me give you the two most controversial questions. It's clear on its surface. Question 27 asked, will you join with the armed forces of the United States in combat duty wherever ordered? Japanese Americans, right after the, the war began, like rushed to their recruitment centers to volunteer to serve, like any young American of that period. This was an act of patriotism, which was answered with a slap on the face. They were denied military service and categorized as enemy alien and imprisoned. These people were outraged, and there, there was a series of that. Oh, the second question, question 28, was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? The Emperor of Japan? That was outrageous. The government assumed, just because of our faces, that we had a pre-existing, inborn racial loyalty to the Emperor. So if you answered no, meaning I have no loyalty to the Emperor to forswear, that no, carried over to the first part of the very same sentence. Will you swear your loyalty to the United States? If you answered yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, that applied to the second part, meant that you were confessing that you had a non-existent loyalty to the emperor that you were forswearing. It was outrageous, a series of abuses. And so they... And my parents, uh, and they answered truthfully, no to those two irrational uh, questions. And for that, they were categorized as disloyal and sent to the segregation camp for disloyals. And th that camp at Tule Lake was bristly with military armament. It had 
three layers of barbed wire fence. The 10 normal confinement camps had one layer of barbed wire fence. The tall sentry towers were now equipped with machine guns aimed at us. The perimeter was patrolled by armed jeeps and a half a dozen tanks, which belonged on a battlefield, not there to intimidate and goad people that were already goaded enough. And many young men, some of whom had initially volunteered to serve as a patriot, were so angry that they became radicalized. Their radicalism was created by the stupidity of the government. They called themselves, uh, until the lake they were called, Hoshidang, or the Japanese word uh, translated, it means the volunteer crew. Mm. They became pro-Japanese advocates. They were the ones who initially volunteered. The United States government made them pro-Japanese advocates, and they would uh, jog around the block to be fit enough to rise up when Japan lands mm. on mainland U.S. and join them. And they uh, jogged to the uh, Japanese cadence of washoi, washoi. And that's what I woke up to in the mornings mm. there at Tuli Lake. And they were in their uh, jogs with banzai, banzai, banzai. They did all these things to, to egg on and irritate the uh, camp command. And there was such uh, irritants that they forced uh, the internees who had uh, construction experience, and they, they were forced to build a concrete jail building with iron bars to define the jail cells. We call that the stockade. And they were dragged out in the middle of that. They didn't arrest them in the daytime because it would have caused the riot. So they came in the dark of the night and dragged these suspects, they, they, they usually got them wrong. These suspects and their wives or mothers or sisters would be crying out, he's, he's innocent, he's, he's a good boy, please don't. And they would be sobbing and yelling and they would be taken to the stockade. And on one uh, pilgrimage, we uh, toured the stockade. There were graffitis on the wall, but what I noticed most were the brown splotches on the concrete walls. They were tortured and their heads were smashed against them. And th those are the ones, the yeah. troublemakers so-called, but they were, they were initially uh, good people. They were taken briefly uh, to places like Dalton Wells and that was called a Justice Department Detention Center. Can you imagine that word justice happening to identify these horror places, Justice Department detention centers. But this was a temporary one. As you said, they, they were there at most a few months, usually a few weeks. And uh, the main Justice Department detention camp was in Texas at, at a place called Crystal City. And the outrage there was the United States had an alliance agreement with Peru. Peru had many Japanese diaspora immigrants. They arranged with the Peruvian government to round up their Japanese Peruvians, and the United States government went and brought them over 
to the Crystal City Justice Department Detention Center. Can you imagine how outrageous that was? Their intention was to use these uh, Japanese Peruvians as uh, trade exchange for Americans who happened to be in Japan and were uh, captives of the Japanese government. And we didn't have too many Japanese Americans for that purpose. And so they borrowed <laughs> Japanese Peruvians for such purpose. And one of my uh, in-laws, husband, was a Japanese Peruvian. When the war ended, these Japanese Peruvians in the uh, Justice Department Detention Center were declared illegal immigrants. Outrageous. The United States government brought foreigners of Japanese ancestry to this country, and then they called them illegal immigrants, and they had to fight to stay here. And my sister-in-law's sister married one of them, and he became Americanized. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have uh, a few members of the Japanese-American community who are of Peruvian origin. Mm -hmm. There is a complex and unbelievably cruel history uh, in this chapter of uh, American history, wow. internationally. Thank you so much for sharing these stories. I think it's so it's so interesting to have them, um, you know, your piece, Lost, Lost Freedom, um, stories and music are the things that connect us throughout the generations and tell us what not to do moving ahead. Well, I, it's my mission. I'm an actor and an artist and it's my art that I use. We developed a Broadway musical called Allegiance. Uh, I go on speaking engagements. I have written uh, op-ed pieces for uh, both uh, the New York Times and the Washington Press. And now we're working on getting They Called Us Enemy made into a television series. I'm using all the tools I have as an artist to educate Americans today, as few Americans can, to tell that very personal story and share it so that we can have a more educated, uh, better Americans in the future. I did it as a graphic memoir. I wrote my autobiography, which was published in 1994, mm -hmm. but I did this uh, graphic memoir to reach a young readership, teenagers and preteens. Mm -hmm. Because at that age, you're ab absorbing in information through your pores, and they're going to become the voters of the future, and hopefully the movers and shakers of the future. And they'll be like uh, Sally Yates, who will say, I will not defend this executive order. Thank you. Anything else that you feel worth mentioning? A lot more. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I, you can tell I'm a garrulous guy. And activist George Takei. He was one of the 120,000 Japanese Americans interned during World War II. His mission is to tell his personal story in as many places as possible so this dark period of American democracy will never happen again. All right, y'all, that was my 2021 interview with actor and activist George Takei. He was here in Moab when I spoke with him about to perform a piece called Lost Freedom, a Memory, based on his personal writings about his own forced confinement during World War II. Honored to speak to him. And uh, yeah, 
an honor to revisit that. We wanted to play that today because the MOA Museum, as you may have heard earlier in the program, they have been hard, hard at work on a temporary exhibition that is uh, debuting this weekend. It's called A Moab Prison Camp, Japanese American Incarceration in Grand County. And it talks about the local and national story of Japanese American incarceration during the war. So the official public opening is between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. this Saturday, February 17th. You can find more information on that at moabmuseum.org. Thank you all so much for listening to This Week in Moab. I'm Molly Marcello, your host for this evening. Keep it tuned to your community radio station, Moab Community Radio, at 90.1 and 106.7 in Grand and Emory Counties and 90.7 in San Juan County. And that's right, worldwide, online at kzmu.org. <laughs>